This is One North Stories. Our goal here is quite simple. We provide hyper-local, brand-based storytelling at the intersection of science, technology, and business here in Singapore with a global perspective. We are starting with a launch series focused on technology startups, and then plan to take the podcast broader, telling our stories, your stories, about the Singapore deep tech ecosystem. Whether you work as a venture capitalist on Sand Hill Road or in Southeast Asia, already doing R&D in Singapore, or perhaps a student dreaming big about technology, or someone in between. Join us to learn about the exciting technology being developed in our labs in Singapore, their translation journeys to market, and the inspirational people coming together to make yesterday's dream reality. If you have future episode ideas, segment ideas, or want to partner with us on this exciting journey, please get in touch. Our contact details are in the show notes. These are our stories. We hope they inspire you to create your own. And now, on to the show. If you've eaten or plan to eat food today, this should be important to you. Everything we look around contains crude oil, be it plastics, be it, you know, your antibiotics, pesticides. But over the years, we've learned that this is not a way to we cannot do this for the next thousand years. What needs to come next can come from biology. We can use microbes as a factory to produce what we require. And we can use learnings from biotechnology to produce better solutions. Combining these two, like manufacturing and the microbes and using advances in biotechnology to specifically solve the problems while not affecting the good things is what will be the core of the century and is what is the core of Theora as well. The first problem is disease management for us in plants and animals. Again, for that, we've identified like aquaculture as the very first, what we call as beachhead market. In Silicon Valley, failure is celebrated. In Asia, failure is looked down upon. For this launch episode, I sat down with Rashita from Tiora, a Singapore biotech company. They're leveraging nature's factory, the cell, plus precision fermentation and biomanufacturing technology to replace much of what crude oil is used for today. They recently won the Livability Challenge, a $1 million prize sponsored by the Tomasic Foundation in the food and nutrition track. Rashita shares about wanting to use science to solve problems people are having on a daily basis, and thus her career choice of tech entrepreneur after a postdoc. A bit of compare and contrast between Silicon Valley and Singapore, assembling the core team, not of world leaders, but of the best people for the job. Deep technical expertise, shared vision, plus startup experience. Working tirelessly to learn from her core customers, farmers. Market adoption and customer acquisition for a hair on fire problem versus a good to have solution. Entering the beachhead market of aquaculture and then further developments to revolutionize disease management in plants and animals. On to the interview. Hello and welcome to One North Stories. Today we have Rashita from Teora. Welcome, Rashita. Hi, very nice to be here. Thanks, Ruben. We've learned a little bit more about your company over, over the last, especially the, the last month. Congratulations again on the Livability Challenge 2023, uh, winning the, the $1 million prize. Can you share with us, maybe take a step back from the prize and share your background? What got you into science and technology to start? 
Yeah, so science and technology was always very exciting. I come from uh, business families in India, and this was very far away from what everyone around me was doing back then. And so basically, it was something that I always enjoyed in school, and it stayed on. I remember, like as a kid, I like my mom was telling me about Nobel prizes, and I thought this was the coolest thing to do. Like you know, sit and discover new things and understand how the way the world works. So it was a quite a natural choice for me. Okay, and so throughout grade school, high school, and then into university. Yeah, exactly. So I was, as I said, like actually, maths and physics was my really core strengths, and they still are. And it just continued from there. What I realized is that biotechnology would take off in the century. And that was then what I studied alongside physics and you know chemistry, the core science subjects. Did you have a first technical love? Were you, were you a tinkerer as a kid or teenager? For sure, all the time. I mean, I was working as a so in India, like children don't really work. Even teenagers don't really work. But I was like hanging out and sort of working at a car mechanic place okay. because that's another thing that I really love cars. Okay, so the, you, you'd go in the workshop and tinker or bug the mechanics and then just learn? Yeah, exactly. And then your undergrad studies, was that kind of like a, a basic engineering or a basic science? Or basic science basic sciences. Because back then they were not offering like, you know, biotechnology as a part of engineering. So basic science and engineering. And then after your undergrad, where did you go for your graduate school? So graduate school, it was a lab that was based on EMBL and that moved to Singapore. Okay. So I moved to Singapore and within Singapore, the lab moved as well. So we were at TLL and then we moved to ASTAR IMCB. And that's where I did my graduate studies, got my degree from NUS. So TLL, that's the Thomastic Life <clears throat> Sciences Lab? Exactly, yes. Okay. And then after your, you finished your PhD at NUS attached to ASTAR. And then what, what did you do after that? A postdoctoral study. So my PhD was in a very different field from what I did for my postdoc. It was PhD was more of synthetic biology. We were designing biosensors to to detect signaling in like in whole tissues. So we were doing like you know whole organ cultures. We were looking at growth factors and all way before it became mainstream news and all. And then I was working for my postdoctoral studies again. It was a lab in uh, Columbia University in New York that got a lot of funding to be in Singapore. So it was between the two places in some sense where we were looking at different materials, cell material interactions, like what, how do cells interact with materials and how does this bring about function and how can then we design materials that can help cells to do what they need to do in a better way. So those could have like many applications because all of our body, like we are not a bag of floating cells, right? Yeah. So there is a lot of material around it and these material properties shape us as humans and shape us in our normal everyday activity that the body needs to do plus in disease management as well. Like materials going wrong is usually hallmark of diseases. Okay. So then in, in looking at your CV, your background, you're at this mechanobiology institute kind of hybrid between NUS and Singapore and Columbia University in New York. And, you know, you're doing well, you have good publications, and you've got kind of this academic world, scientific world in front of you. And you made becoming a founder your first choice. Can you explain that to us? What was your thought process, you know, in choosing the entrepreneur biotech route versus the, let's say, quote unquote, traditional academic route? 
Yeah, this is a great question, right? Because as you rightly said, if you have accomplished, if you have like papers, which I do have in top tier journals, including Nature Materials and Nature Protocols as first author, as senior author, it it was a question that everyone asked and why are you leaving academia? Because it was like natural to, you know, progress into a more, you know, faculty position and a academic position. But that was a choice. Uh, at that juncture, it was very important for me to think about how I see the next, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of my life. And I have enjoyed academia thoroughly, but I was, uh, because it is new discoveries, learning new things, like seeing the world through different lenses, like quite literally through the lens of a microscope, or through the lens of, you know, a different new experiment. So I enjoyed that quite a lot. But at some point it felt that the science was getting locked up in publications. And then the question that was always eating at me was like, what next? Like, how do we bring this science to society? And that's when I made a choice that someone has to do that work. And someone has to say that, okay, the science is great. Now, what can we do to solve problems on and which people have on an everyday basis? Yeah. And that's where entrepreneurship seemed like a very good way forward, because you can really take charge and say that, okay, these are few of the problems that we have identified. These are very critical to move forward, uh, like either in sustainability, we work in food, so in food, to move forward and bring the best solutions for us as an entire human race. And were you entrepreneurial throughout your formative years? Or, I mean, because we talked about the, a little bit the science technology, right? Studying, playing, and not playing, but, you know, learning yeah. in the from car mechanics and things. Did you ever like have like side businesses growing up or this was kind of, you know, you're, you're in your mid twenties and now I want to try be, to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. I mean, PhD, you don't finish in mid twenties, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, the short answer is no, because, uh, my parents had also put in a lot of focus on education and they're like, you know, we are providing the money, go do what you do best. Okay. And, uh, so it was like quite discouraged in that sense, like, you know, because they thought it would take focus away from what I need to get done. And growing up in India, like, you know, academia and all is quite competitive. Yes. Uh, like through like school and college, like, act, like studies. And then they wanted, like, you know, if I really wanted to do that, they wanted to support me in every way. So that was quite discouraged. So no, the short answer is no, we did not have, you know, side hustle <laughs> growing up. Okay. Was this something then you kind of partway through your postdoc, you got interested in? Tell us how did this entrepreneur path find its way or how did you find your way into the entrepreneur path? That's a, that's again, fantastic question, right? Because it, when we are in academia, you now people are talking about it. Now it's a part of mainstream media, but it was not so few years back in Singapore, right? So it was always like, okay, what would you do? But then I had some friends who got into entrepreneurship. Uh, one of them was doing like a medtech company. Okay. And then I was helping out there and that opened the possibility of uh, these things to me as a serious uh, career choice. Having said that, it's not an easy choice because it comes with a lot more uncertainties compared to many other careers. But it's also satisfying because you know that, you know, you can really make a difference if you get it done. So then going back to your CV, your LinkedIn profile, you then make that decision and you go into this program by Entrepreneur First. And they've got different ways of getting people into to, to entrepreneurship. And now, okay, no longer in Singapore, but their model's well-known. So did you have the idea for Teora when you went into Entrepreneur First? Or you really wanted to be the Entrepreneur First, go through that entrepreneurship crash course, and then find the technology to bring to market? Or so 
some things were always very clear, like, you know, using microbes as the factory was a very clear choice for me because I could see that is where the potential lies. It had to be a biotechnology company because the goal that I had is to bring the cutting edge advances in biotechnology to solve the current problems that there are. And then going into EF was great because they, as you said, it's a crash course. Like, you know, you really get acquainted with the high level stuff pretty fast. And that was a very nice experience indeed. So then after Entrepreneur First, you are also with this other accelerator, Berkeley Skydeck. Indeed, yes. Can, can you share with us what, what is Berkeley Skydeck? How, how does that work? So Berkeley Skydeck is another accelerator in the U.S., of course, it's yeah. in UC Berkeley, in the Bay Area, in the heart of where a lot of innovation has come from, right? And it's also a very competitive accelerator to get into. So they have like between 10 and 20 companies when they have like 1,200 other companies globally applying. It's extremely credible because you have two parts, like you get access or you get to their you know, latest advances in academia plus their network that has gone and, you know, they're in top positions and global companies have built other startups. So it was a fantastic ecosystem to be in and to learn from. Okay. Are, are you still associated with Berkeley Skydeck or is that kind of over No, now? we work very closely with Berkeley okay. Skydeck and they're very supportive. It's like, you know, they're in it for life. Okay. So that is, that support system is definitely fantastic and that insights, the learnings of how things are actually done can be very valuable. The Silicon Valley always has this, well, it has, it has the reputation. How, how would you say that compares to, to Singapore? Or, I mean, very different. So how, how do you, I don't say make the switch, but yeah, take those lessons that, that, that you've learned there and continue to learn there and, and bring it to, to your founding team and to what you're trying to build with Singapore as your home base. Great question, right? It's like, it's a, it is a, a world apart. It is exactly Silicon Valley is at the end of the world and Singapore is looking to be like the Silicon Valley in Asia. There are differences for sure, and there are some, but the core principles of, you know, doing a business, running it profitably remain. And I think those are more emphasized in Singapore, right? So, for example, if we talk about capital or access to capital, right? Like the Bay Area is, of course, very competitive, but also there is a lot of, lot more risk appetite available for capital because people have made uh, their money in tech and they know that, yes, tech can be risky initially but it can bring like huge rewards whereas in asia the money is primarily from trading businesses or something similar yeah. where the risk appetite is definitely not as high so what that forces you to do is say is think like it doesn't matter you're doing biotechnology from a business perspective no one cares what they want to see here is like how can you drive revenues how can you drive how can you move towards profitability and that path needs to be laid out like day one, even for a biotech company, which is not expected, for example, in the Silicon Valley. So then you're forced to think what can be the driving forces that can enable this. That's an interesting perspective I hadn't heard about yet. We know, yeah, Silicon Valley, a lot more risk, a lot more, you say, write downs are freely, you know, write downs are normal, right? And whereas here, okay, with the old money, they might not want to write down so much. Or so the, yeah, the risk appetite being very I mean, different. Yeah. Write down as one. But even if you think from like, you know, from it's like, has it been proven? It's like without the money, how does one prove it? In Silicon Valley, failure is celebrated. In Asia, failure is looked down upon. And uh, 
the US is a lot more forgiving as well. It's like if you make mistakes, if you don't have like the best product, they will forgive, they will wait, they will adopt the next version. Whereas here it's like, you know, this is it. Either you have it, then we talk, you don't have it. So it's a lot more like harsh, so to say, being here. But, you know, you have to be baked in a kiln to be a beautiful vase. Yeah. I want to go on that point where you said you need the money to prove it. Right? Yes. And, and so are there pockets, at least in this Singapore deep tech ecosystem, Singapore tech ecosystem that kind of help you get over that initial hump to, to get the capital to start proving your point? It depends on what kind, like, there are some pockets, but they are only available to some people. So Singapore ecosystem is set up differently. And there are like, you know, what is available to a Singaporean founder is very different from what is available to a non-Singaporean founder. So the short answer is like, yes and no. For example, like the livability challenge is definitely a pocket available to all founders. And we're very grateful and quite proud to be, to be winning that grant because then it, it validates yes. everything that we were saying that we need to do and we have done. Okay. So just curious, are you still bootstrapping or do you have initial investors? We are not bootstrapping. We do have initial investors, but we've been very prudent with capital. Okay. Initial investment definitely comes from the accelerators and from angel investors. So with that, I mean, you, you have real operations. So how big is Teora right now? So today, Teora is 10 and counting. We, are, we have like few other part-time people, which is beyond the 10 headcount. It's a fantastic team build of both experiences from both academia and industry and startups that essentially align on the fact that we need to solve the big problems in the most efficient way possible. I want to come to your technology now and what you're leveraging to, to your application. So you have this tagline, unlocking nature's factory. Can you explain that to us, the core of Teora? First, what do you define as nature's factory? And then how do you then leverage that into your first big application? Yeah. So. We, if you think about manufacturing today, right, it's like primarily driven by chemical processes. I'm not talking about hardware manufacturing. I'm talking more about chemical manufacturing. Okay. It's driven by chemical processes. Primarily the inputs are coming from um, crude oil or some other petroleum-based products. And that is what the last century cracked very well, right? Like how do we use this amazing resource to make life better? And then we have like everything we look around contains crude oil, be it plastics, be it, you know, your antibiotics, pesticides, everything that you can see around you will have some, you know, origin or association with that crude oil. But over the years, we've learned that this is not a way to, we cannot do this for the next thousand years. Like yeah. hundred years is great. We explored the potential. So that can be a pilot of what needs to come next and what needs to come next can come from biology. So we can do like a lot of this chemical or all these manufacturing from solutions from biology. So what that means is that we can use microbes as a factory to produce what we require and to produce, we can use learnings from biotechnology to produce better solutions. So with crude oil, we had, like you said, we have the crude oil, then we have heat, and then we're going to have, you know, infinite number of byproducts yes. and things. And so you're trying to replace some of those with nature grown or nature-based methods, right? Yes, exactly. So that is the core of synthetic biology, right? The synthetic is, term is quite a misnomer here, but it's essentially how can we make what we make using other sources 
instead of using those other sources like crude oil, can we use microbes to make this? But then there is another element. It's like, can we have more elegant solutions? Like, you know, for example, like, you know, pesticides or antibiotics are a sledgehammer approach to, you know, most of the microbes or most of the insects that are there. So not all of them are harmful. Like there yes. are a lot of them that are beneficial. So, but now we can step into biotechnology and ask the question, can we only target the harmful species, which at the same time, allowing the beneficial species to flourish, combining these two, like manufacturing and the microbes and using advances in biotechnology to specifically like, you know, solve the problems while not affecting the good things is what will be the core of the century and is what is the core of Theora as well. Could I draw a parallel to personalized medicine? I have this memory in my head from my undergrad physics days and the, we were talking or a lecture was talking. He's like, we can kill any cancer cell we want. You know, we know how to do it. But the problem is when we start killing the cancer cells, we kill everything, not everything, but we kill many good cells, many good parts of your body as well. Is it exactly. so, so then personalized medicine is yeah, the only targeting thing. So this is the same thing, but let's say not necessarily for human medicine, but for other problems we have in the world. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Like you, you can draw parallels to this in every single problem. One was the antibiotics that I just spoke about. One is plastics, right? It's like you want the plastic to be biodegradable, right? It's like yes. you don't, you want to have the good use of that material plastic for whatever purposes like packaging and so on and so forth, which has made the world a smaller place because now things can be transported so easily. So you want that functionality, but you don't want the so-called side effect, right? Like you don't want the plastic to end up in a turtle's nose or in landfills or any of these other things. So how do you then solve that problem? And then the answer would be like bioplastics, for instance. Okay, thanks. Make, makes sense, makes perfect sense. Um, so going into your technology a little bit, you've, um, you have a platform technology that, that you have named Solac. Um, and so again, looking at your website, kind of three steps for that, the discovery engine, low cost, sustainable biological production, and then for your first application, the fish vaccines, then oral delivery. Can you talk us through each of these kind of parts that make up Solac? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we have to have like one stream of biology will not be enough to bring a solution, right? So we have built it, we have identified the problem and then to say that, okay, to solve this problem, what all are the different components? What all are the characteristics of the solutions that we need? And then what all are the different components that we can bring together? to solve this problem. So the first problem is disease management for us in plants and animals. Again, for that, we've identified like aquaculture as the very first, what we call as beachhead market. To do this, if you think about it, right, like the traditional solutions are practically non-existent. Like aquaculture has to give vaccination by removing every single animal from the water and injecting them individually one by one. This is exactly how you and I were given the COVID vaccine. For humans, great, it worked, right? And with humans, like we had to have more than 80% vaccination for the world to safely open up again. In aquaculture, this is very hard. Like you think about smallholder farmers, how are they going to do it? It's, and the outcome is that only 1% of the fish are vaccinated. Can you imagine only 1% of us being vaccinated during COVID? It doesn't work. So now the problem is that there is injection-based solutions, which are not accessible to 99% of the market because of the cost, because of the stress to the animals, because of so many other reasons. The only feasible solution then is an oral vaccine or an oral way to provide disease management. 
then we have to think okay in an oral solution what all would you need right like you would need a very efficient solution that is not based on so currently the vaccines are based on what we call as whole inactivated bacteria that means the whole disease causing microorganism is inactivated and put in the injection that is given right works great but many countries don't allow this as a oral solution because you're introducing the pathogen or the disease causing microorganism into the environment so it carries a small but finite risk that you're introducing the disease itself into the the water into the local environment sure. exactly yeah. into the water so which is then not allowed in many countries so then you will need to reinvent okay how do we make better vaccines that's where or how do we make better disease management solutions so that's where our bioinformatics platforms platform comes in is led by uh, professor indira ghosh who has uh, more than 30 years of experience in this and in both industry and academia where she has worked for solutions for infectious diseases in humans and now we are bringing those learnings to to our solutions then we have the synthetic biology and precision fermentation platform and then we there we have dr suruchi and krishnaveni leading the show where we say that okay this is now designed by bioinformatics how can we produce it at scale in a at a price point that the farmers require and then we have the material science part of things right where we actually need to understand how do we deliver it orally because oral delivery is not so easy for aquaculture right because you need to make sure that it is not it can be transported at room temperature like hot and humid climate like all our yeah. vaccines were transported in minus 80 right yes it has to then be not dissolved in water and covey it has to be stable in the stomach where the proteins can where the proteins are naturally broken down then it has to go to the gut it has to get absorbed and then it has to actually bring about the required instructions to the immune system to be able to protect these animals so that's where the material science advances come in and then of course we have dr gajendra who's leading the uh, regulatory and product development he has like a decade and a half if not more of experience bringing biotechnology solutions to agri markets in and he was part of the bd corn bd cotton story so he this these are difficult problems to solve at every stage so you need a combination of different technologies and expertise to come together to actually bring a solution to make a solution feasible that's a lot of i'll say interdisciplinary cross disciplinary parts coming together which brings me to my next point in this academic world that the kind of a star and which we've gone through this idea of translating technology to the market from the nature paper saying this application or this these results could be used for applications x y and z mm -hmm. and i'll say rarely do we actually get there we just mm -hmm. we put that there it's there in the ether and yeah. then for somebody else to then maybe take it maybe yeah. not take it but you've done that and you've put together the team to to translate yeah. this technology and multiple technologies coming together to then build the vaccine that can actually be delivered orally in a safe manner indeed all coming together so can can you tell us how 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 has this journey been for you at Teora from understanding the base platform of the synthetic biology of your first beachhead market or finding your first beachhead market and then putting this team together how how's how's that journey been putting the technologies to, right. to, together to get right. to where you are now i mean it it's a lot of effort right but it's also very exciting because you're learning something new every day and you're thinking of innovative ways to solve not just the technology problems but everything else that a business requires right that's like technology is only one part of the business product development is another and everything else like 
bringing the technology to market. It's called as go to market. And then scaling it, bringing it to the masses, making sure that you know your supply chain, making sure your operations, everything are running well. It's a massive feat to achieve, and we are still on the journey to doing it. So what academia teaches you is logical thinking, and that's one of the best things that we've taken forward. And that's what is important, right? Like, don't forget the core, like, like have the logical thinking. Because it's like you cannot be married to technology, you cannot, you have to be married to the problems of the customers, and that is your goal to solve. If your fanciest technology is not the best solution for the customers, you have to go and say what is better. And just understanding like that whole process of like keeping the technology aside for a bit and going and understanding the problems of the customers, going and understanding every single day, different countries, different farms, different people, what are the problems, what keeps you up at night, what is bothering you, and then saying that, okay, if we have a solution, would you use it? And then actually trying to bring the solution to them is what goes a long way. It, it cannot be the other way around. You, you, you mentioned all these expertise that, that you've assembled into, I'll, I'll call your core team. How did you assemble your core team? From your existing network or you had to go network and find who's best at this, who's a world leader in this, who can I find to, to help me solve this part of the problem? So you ask two questions. It's like, I would ask you, why would a world leader want to work with a startup, right? Like they have so many other things to yes. do. So that's something a startup should also understand, like in the journey, what we need to realize is that what we need today and who would be the best people to do this? Because a startup and like the best people, for example, would be in the top corporates, right? And then why would they move to Like, is them moving to the startup a best fit? It may be, more often it is not because startup is more fluid, more chaotic, less structured, and we don't have those large teams to support the world leaders yeah. in okay. doing what they need to do, right? And we also don't have, like, every, you need a team, you would need uh, the money, you would need all of those things. So it's like, then you say, okay, what do we need to get done? Who are the people who have the right startup kind of mindset? So a lot, like, as I said, our team has startup experience, and that means they've worked in startups before, which is a rare find in, this part of the world compared to Silicon Valley, for example, but they've worked in startups, so they understand the fluid nature, they understand the uncertainties of things, and that's how they can deliver best. Like these are the people who thrive in these environments, and these are the people who deliver best in these environments. So assembling a team is difficult. There is no one answer. And the team has come together in like every person who's joined the team has a different story to tell of how they and why they decided to join Theora. And the fact that we are motivated by the same core principles of bringing the best solutions to the market in the shortest possible time is what all of us buy into, all of us believe in. I want to talk about your vaccine production mm -hmm. and so let's say that the impact of delivering the vaccines to the fish. And in preparing for this, I was curious, is it driven by a productivity angle or an insurance angle? Yes, we want our fish to survive, but why would farmers adapt your solution? What's their motivating factor? Yeah, so productivity is of course one, right? Like currently there are no solutions or there are, so for example, even when, so this question can be broken down into many parts, right? It's like you ask whether it's insurance angle. So this is like almost the ivory tower, right? As in the sense that insurance comes from human health. Yes. The uncertainties in aquaculture are so large that no one wants to ensure aquaculture. Like, this is the scale of the problem that we are talking about. It's like, 
because you don't know whether the crop is going to survive or not, there is no way for an insurance company to bear that risk and because the losses are so often. So insurance is a luxury that aquaculture would have given where it is. But point is that it shouldn't be. A, it shouldn't be a luxury. B, it's like we all eat food every single day, right? It's like we have medical insurance. Why don't we have like agri-insurance, which is what we can contribute for these farmers to then not take all the risks themselves. So it's a very different world and very disheartening sometimes because if the farmer loses the crop, he is paying the price. When we are eating all literally and figuratively all the benefits that he is producing. So it's at the core. It's like, can we solve diseases to reduce the risks? For example, the Deputy Prime Minister of Singapore made a statement that the losses due to common fish diseases currently are between 70 and 100%. And Singapore aims to reduce that to between 20 and 50%. So these are very large numbers we are talking about. So I think that kind of answers your question of why this is required. I didn't know that the losses were so huge and essentially some parts of it uninsurable because like you said, the uncertainty is just massive. What geographic markets or country markets are you looking to enter with your fish vaccine? And then maybe tell us a little bit the, the nuances of, of the different markets? That's a fantastic question. So if I may add here, it's like fish is not our first market. So we already have solutions developed for shrimp. Okay. So shrimp are again, very different species, very different, but that has validated our platform. That has validated our first solution. There are 12 shrimp producing nations in the world. And we have, because the disease problem is so large, we were going to go to two countries to start with. But now we have to go to more than eight countries because there is demand and we cannot say no. Like, because there is a demand today. Like, there are some farmers who are telling us that they lost millions of dollars just last month because of the disease solution that we've already developed as our first product. So it's going to be eight countries. Yes, there are nuances, but there is also because, so then that's where Singapore also comes in, right? It's like, we're working with the authorities here to get these things regulated. This can set a very nice precedence for all the other countries that are you know, shrimp producing and subsequently fish producing for the species that we are working on. Okay. As you target a country to, to enter, do you need employees on the ground or do you try to work through agents in kind of figuring out how to enter that country? And all the nuances, let's say after you've established your product line here in Singapore. So there is no simple answer. So it, it can't be one person that can solve all the problems. In every country, you need a buy-in from three people. You actually need a buy-in from the government. You need a buy-in from academia. You need a buy-in from like the major producers. And you have to work with all these three. And it can't be like, you know, you can't post one person and say, okay, go do it. It's every new country you enter is a lot of initial work. After that initial work is done, then you have a team which does like technical sales, which does technical support that is on ground. So it's a journey, like entering every country is a journey and uh, it cannot be simplified on do you need okay. people on the ground today? <laughs> okay, thanks. So in, in that journey, after you get to market, I mean, how do you scale? I mean, you've given some preludes to this. It's quite intensive, but is it a matter of multiplying your production, multiplying your on the ground teams in each market. Let's call that linear. I also assume as biotech, you have some non-linear projections on how you can scale as well into the future. What, what is the basis for, let's say, potential non-linear growth for Tiora? So 
the thing is, once we get regulatory approvals or once we have, a, like, you know, once we can enter a country, it's like you can, and you've demonstrated the product at the farm scale, then it's essentially like rapid expansion, right? And this is where, you know, sometimes, like this is when I was doing all of this, I realized why software is so scalable, right? Because it transcends borders. It's yes. like you can sell, like you can write a software today morning, sell it tomorrow morning to whichever country you like, right? But when you're moving a physical product, there are so many elements to it. It's like customs of the country that you're exporting from, customs of the country that you're importing into, then from the, like who takes responsibility of that customers? Is it us, is it our customers? Like all, there are so many elements. It's like taxation, the local logistics, like you go to a country like Indonesia, it's a huge archipelago. Yes. Like the logistics within the country itself can be quite challenging. All the farms are quite remote, but so it's as any business would be, right? It's like you do, you establish product market fit. What that means is that you show that the problem is important. You show that this important meaning it's big and people want to solve it today. It's as it's called in the startup world, hair on fire problem, not a good to have solution. So then you show that the solutions are working and people are breaking your doors to get access to the solutions as soon as possible. And systematically, then you make the solution available to more and more people within the countries. Going back to the point you mentioned, it's a lot, absolutely a lot of groundwork. Yeah. A lot of groundwork. And also educating yes. your end users. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit, when you, when you get to market, there are these great gains to be had by the farmers. But still, I assume there's a lot of education. For sure, to, to go yeah. How, how do you go about educating the farmers? Because they're ultimately your end customer. Yeah, so... Mm, they understand they understand the problem better than us because they see the problem firsthand. If they want a solution, they will work with you to make it happen. And this validates that the problem is real and it's not something good to have. So that makes education easier. Uh, but then we also partner with people who sell technologies to farmers to make it possible to, because then these are the farmers who are tech savvy, who, you know, who want to make a difference. And then you bring it to them saying that, okay, this is the solution that we have, this is how you apply it, then they will adopt it. Those are what we call as early adopters or early users. And then once they have done it, they will talk about it. They, their neighbors will see that these people are doing better than they will want it. So that's how the market grows. And that includes like, you know, inputs from the governments, from the local bodies that work with farmers on so many different It's terms. also like the trade associations. Exactly, and yes. So just curious, these farmers, what scale operations are, are they? Are these like small, or kind of industrial level or every, and everyone in between? Yeah, or it is. It is. every. So you, we classify, for example, farmers in four main categories. It's like traditional, semi-intensive, intensive, and ultra-intensive. These are based on number of ponds they have, the amount of produce they have. And depending on where they lie in this category, they would be more readily, like they would be more open to adopting technology, but more importantly, they would also face larger challenges and have more structured operations to be able to adopt them. So if we start from there and then, you know, slowly reach like all goal would be to reach like as many farmers, like so farmers from all categories. I, I want to ask what's next for Tiora? And that's not really a, a fair question because you're very much in this scale up phase, getting your vaccine manufacturing settled and then shipping at scale. And like we just talked about getting this in the farmer's hands to help them to mm -hmm. reduce their uncertainty. And so aquaculture is, is your beachhead market. We're, we're going to assume that goes yes. well and you're successful. 
What comes next after this? So the goal is disease management in plants and animals. There are disease challenges, of course, in plants and animals, and they are being solved by, again, chemical solutions, pesticides, fertilizers, etc. So can we do this bio-based? And this hits all of food production that is feeding 100% of the world today. Okay. And that is what our main focus is because, like, if you've eaten or plan to eat food today, this should be important to you. Uh, but beyond that, we our technology can be applied to alternate proteins and the alternate, you know, new food segments. But the technology potential is limitless. Like, for example, pet markets, for example, human health markets, for example, allied markets, like, you know, can we, like, do other manufacturing that can feed into these industries? So the potential is limitless. Having said that, we need to focus. So aquaculture would be our first focus, even though I'm personally vegetarian. But, and beyond that, it's plants and animals, plants essentially. Plants, okay. And so that's, I mean, farming, right? Exactly. I mean, I mean aquaculture yeah. is also farming. Well, okay, but yeah. okay. I mean, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean where, where I grew up, we call that cash crops. Cash uh, crops, ca yeah. Cash so crops. it's grains, fruits, everything, yeah. Okay. So if you could project out, you know, where Tior is going to be in five plus years, I know that's maybe a luxury at some point, but people, I'm sure people ask you. So what, what's your answer when you say, where, where are you and your team going to be in, in five plus years? So, yeah, that is a luxury to be able to answer, right? But it's also important to have a vision. Yes. And the vision is disease management and in plants and animals. We are, like, in a couple of years, we would already be expanding the next market. So, from the way we've grown, is like we've gone from shrimp. Now we are including, like, fish species, the major fish species, be it baramuni, be it salmon, be it others. So, similarly, like, then it would be aquaculture and beyond. So what would be the high value crops that people need to protect? What are the ones that are being hit most by climate crisis or climate change, as we would say? And identifying, like again, doing all the groundwork for market research and identifying where the problems are. But what is the beauty that will happen there is that the solutions will be available faster because our platforms are already developed. And then we, we already have a better understanding of how to get into these markets when it comes to regulatory, when it comes to market adoption, given the expertise in the team. I want to talk to quickly about some lessons from your founding story, your three plus years. And since you've made this your, your choice, made this your life's work, or at least for this phase of your life's work, and you're building this biotech company, the emphasis on disease management for plants and animals, but also you started as COVID hit the world. If you were to tell yourself four years ago, five years ago, as you were you know, starting to think about the entrepreneur journey, what lessons would you have told yourself? I mean, yeah, it's hard. I mean, so to myself, I sort of knew what I was getting into and I had the luxury, like, you know, I didn't have a lot of responsibilities on the family side. So I could make this choice probably more easily than some people. But it's a hard journey, but it's also fun and rewarding because for me personally, I like to learn new things every day, do new things. And this is like, I'm learning about everything, right? Like from how something goes from, you know, being on the plant or in the farm all the way to being in the final consumer's hand. So I have newfound respect for everything that I see in the supermarkets. <laughs> but it's like, do your due diligence. Like, like you know, your investors, your customers, everyone is doing their due diligence. But you need to do your due diligence as well. Don't take anything for granted. Like, you know, we didn't know COVID was going to hit. We st started right before COVID and then it was like too late to go back. So we didn't know that there would be lockdowns. We didn't know that we would have to you know, cover costs when nothing gets done because these are stressful times for a startup. Like we don't know that the timelines would change completely. So, so be prepared, like be open-minded, of course, which, and then take one day at a time, but keep at it. 
like keep at it, like do it, it'll get done. Okay, I absolutely love that. I mean, fun and rewarding. I, I, I love that point. And then, yeah, due diligence. And then, like you said, persistence, persistence, persistence. Exactly. And now you're seeing it pay off. It's still, still early still days. Early. It's still early days. Yes, it is paying mm -hmm. off. Like we are way better off from when we started out. Like, you know, we've grown the team. We've built the first product. We have demonstrated that it's working very well with the most rigorous scientific experimentation. But it's still early days. Like if you, because you just ask a couple of minutes back, where will you be five years from now, right? So these are the formative times for the next phase. In terms of a wrap up, anything that, that we didn't cover that, that you want to share about Tiora? Oh I mean, yeah, I'm really grateful to be in the Singapore ecosystem. I mean, the fact that we are in ASTA Central, it is quite quite forward thinking of ASTA to have this arm, to have this access and the support that is required. I'm very grateful to the livability challenge to recognize that, you know, climate change and food sustainability are important and like supporting innovation there. I'm very grateful to the team that we have. And it's because of them that, you know, I can sit here and talk about these things. It's really like their hard work and their passion that I get the, you know, wonderful opportunity to bring forth to the world. And uh, yeah, with that, yeah, it was great. Like we can be reached out at theoralife.com or theora.life. And I can be reached at rishita at theora.life. Happy to answer any questions, have any further follow-ons. And what we are always looking for is customer connections, uh, grants and government connections, because that's what makes this bring to the next level in this country and any new country everywhere. Thanks. Thanks so much for your time this morning, Rashita. Thank you, Ruben. It was wonderful chatting with you and thank you for bringing our story to the world. And with that, thanks for listening. Please hit like and subscribe wherever you are getting your podcasts. Thanks for joining us for our launch series and be sure to look out for future episodes as we explore the intersection of science, technology, and business in the growing Singapore deep tech scene together.